There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, Media Podders. Uh, just a little acoustic note for you before the show begins. Uh, we've been recording on roof terraces this summer, as you know. Uh, this week, thanks to the unique way that the Media Podcast is funded, we found ourselves literally recording on the street so there is some background noise uh, and I'll use this opportunity again to say if you'd like to pay for us to have a studio one day do go to themediapodcast.com slash donate I'm literally begging to you from a street anyway enjoy the show hello and welcome to the media podcast I'm Ollie Mann on today's show Facebook launches a TV station sort of Netflix loses its Disney content but gains the comic book universe behind Kickass and Kingsman we discuss the importance of making your own content as a digital publisher and in a not unrelated story we'll discuss The Guardian losing their Football Weekly presenter and producer to a new podcast startup. Plus we explore the publishing success of The Week Junior, a current affairs magazine for kids. The latest radio listening figures are announced. Dave and Watch have a new owner and in the media quiz we discover the brands getting a TV makeover. It's all to come on today's media podcast. And joining me today is BuzzFeed's Louise Ridley and the creative director of Folder Media, Matt Deegan. Uh, Louise, you're in charge of special projects at BuzzFeed. I am indeed. Give us a special project. What are you up to? We have just finished a huge special project, which was a week of special content last week around disability rights, which went amazingly well and was such a cool topic to focus on. We kind of make a big thing at BuzzFeed of focusing on on minority groups and things, so it's disability issues are something we already cover. But we did this week-long special focus, and we had a huge amount of content, kind of hard-hitting investigations, and then amazing lifestyle kind of stuff, like we had one on very buzzfeed kind of piece which was 10 things you learn if you go backpacking in a wheelchair so we had that kind of lighter kind of thing that really gave people an insight into what was going on we had a great investigation into uh, how to get an nhs wheelchair and how whether you get one or not is a massive postcode lottery that got loads of pick up in the guardian and the mail uh, that kind of thing so it's just a brilliant week and we're all very happy in continuing our coverage really well well done you <laughs> uh matt you're organizing the next radio conference at the moment yes that's right and that to be clear that's the next radio conference <laughs> not the next radio conference yes it probably is yeah. the next radio conference it probably is then. chronologically yes. but it's called next radio it is it's all about uh what's next what the future of uh audio is uh, and people who work in that industry um a real kind of cross-section of speakers from uh annie mack 
to uh, Nan Davis, who does the Penguin podcast from, for something else. Uh, we've got stuff on uh, Alexa. So the BBC are doing a kind of audio drama through connected speakers. So Nikki Birch is going to be talking about that. Michelle Livesey from Key 103. Lots of really interesting stuff if you if that's tickles your fancy next.radio has all the details and the tickets are relatively inexpensive for this kind of thing right they are uh, so um, we've just come out of early bird so tickets are 149, 149. Uh, plus that which compared to lots of things is relatively inexpensive possibly affordable if you actually work in radio rather than run radio is yes the idea. And, and that is that is our idea yeah. yeah okay all right well let's start by talking not about radio but about telly well online telly because facebook have announced the launch of watch this is a new feature, which is a tab on Facebook, which is essentially being billed as a rival to television. Is that true, Matt? Yes, I think it's probably more a rival to YouTube and this idea of trying to own the amount of time people spend watching videos. So they're going for things that are more series season based um, and they're encouraging creators to uh, to do that. Uh, to help it along the way, Facebook um, have started commissioning their own programs to try and grow that audience. So Netflix-style programs, but on Facebook. So, so the idea is you're using Facebook as your second screen at the moment in front of your telly, but now you're going to be watching telly on Facebook. Yes, perhaps a Netflix-YouTube hybrid. Uh, they are opening this up first to what they've referred to as creators, uh, which is a very YouTube term for kind of vloggers. Um, I think we'll also see uh, TV production companies making short form. Um, and you know, we run a kids' radio station I sent a note to our team this morning. You know, we make quite a lot of video content, um, a lot of education-based stuff. You know, where do those series fit in this? But couldn't they end up cannibalising themselves, Louise, because they have partners like BuzzFeed at the moment who make video content that sits on Facebook channels that you get to put content around, and instead they're saying, no, 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 put your videos on this other tab where people won't see all of your branding and your furniture around it. Yeah. What's in it for you? Uh, I think that's a really interesting point. I think, I mean, if I was Facebook from their point of view, it makes huge sense to invest in essentially creating their own content. It's kind of the big game in town. Um, I think video is huge on Facebook and it will continue to be so and they prioritise it in their newsfeed. So... I don't think it means immediately that there will be a cannibalization issue, but if this really takes off, then yes, absolutely, it will be about where video sits on Facebook. And if it prioritizes its own content over publishers, then that might be a bit of an issue in terms of where publishers choose to put their stuff. I mean, I think there is also a bit of a, a Facebook lie about video consumption, and I think it's... it's Perish the thought. I know. Are you not Face, saying... Facebook I and, you're not saying Facebook that when I metrics. flick through in five seconds, that's not five views. Well, I think it's a, it's a three-second watch generates uh, a view... Uh, if you're if you're a page owner, you can obviously dive in and look at post thirty seconds and those sorts of things. Um, and I know that uh, I think Box have compared a lot of uh, video consumption that way versus telly. I think the big numbers are big, but when you really dig down in it, uh, both you know, Facebook has a, a long way to go to to really engage with people. And might this finally mean the return of sound to video on Facebook? Because it was all about putting subtitles on things, wasn't it, for a long time? That's a really interesting uh, point. I've recently taught at university, taught some students journalism, and I made a big point to say you need subtitles, anything that's possibly a social video. Imagine no one watching it with sound at all. This is very important. So that would really change a movement that we've seen completely. I think it's possible. It depends depends how engaging this video is and how popular it is. I think the habit of watching stuff without headphones is now pretty universal, so it depends how successful what they produce is. One thing they've recently done, I've seen, is they have turned on sound in the Facebook app for video mm. automatically, so where it was, where it was uh, mute as the default before, I think the default now is sound on, uh, and that, of course, helps with things like watch. Also, there's the issue about how social you want your viewing habits to be. 
I mean, I still have an issue, really, with Spotify telling everyone what I'm listening to. Not because I've got any closet listens. Yeah, yeah, just, yeah. <laughs> just because I think everyone likes to present an image of themselves that's different to what they're actually listening to on a day-to-day basis. On a day-to-day basis. And, and with Facebook video, I mean, I'm not sure I necessarily want it telling all my friends that I'm choosing to watch Celebrity Big Brother at that moment. I mean, something I love about Netflix, which I'm a big fan of, is that you don't have people's comments all around it and you're really zoning into a kind of yeah a kind of private space where you're watching really good quality content and no one is bothering you with alerts all around it and I think that would be a bit of a nightmare if there was a a social element to Netflix I would not be keen I think that would interrupt what I would call decent experience of video well you have effortlessly segued us on to uh, our next story which is Netflix based uh, and the news that Disney is pulling all of their content from Netflix to set up their own platform now, you work in kids' media, Matt, forgive me. Don't Disney already have their own streaming platform? I'm sure I remember seeing posters yeah, for it. I, it. This has seemingly not picked up, and I think it, it shows they've had some trouble with it. So Disney Life uh, is, a, right, is yeah. a service that runs in America and runs in the UK. It's pretty good. It has the vast majority of their material. What it doesn't have on is things that in an earlier deal they had flogged off to Netflix. And I think actually what a lot of this is is tidying up their distribution. You know, it's things coming to you know, old deals that are coming to an end um, they've had a little bit of trouble positioning uh, Disney life uh, and getting it to have real cut through and I think this is obviously another opportunity next year to have another go at that I think the other interesting bit is it's Disney it's Marvel uh, it's Star Wars uh, and that's you know the TV spin-offs as well as the the, the movies they actually have a pretty large catalog they do. of their own they're one of the big ones that isn't just watching old episodes old uh, Dumbo uh, films and that kind of stuff. And is that why we saw a small decrease in Netflix share value on this news? Because Disney's content just is more important than other studios. I don't know if it means that exactly, but obviously it's that that, that caused the share drop. So I think what you see that makes this very interesting is at the same time as, as Disney clearly making a bit of a power grab, or whether it's tying up loose ends or not, it's making a real statement of intent. You have Netflix buying Miller World, the big comic company, which is a really you can look at these two giants making these two moves at the same time and see Disney becoming a bit more like Netflix trying to get a bit more streaming Netflix becoming a bit more like Disney trying to realise that it needs to put even more budget into its own original stuff specifically so superhero properties specifically superheroes which we've seen Disney's been very successful at yeah. um, so well, they're a quirky Scottish comic book publication right so yeah. it's, it's uh, Kick-Ass and Kingsman mm. yeah I so mean, it's a Scottish guy it's yeah. kind of like funny British stuff but I mean it's not exactly world beating Marvel level stuff is I don't it? know I mean Netflix does make very good decisions in terms of what it commissions so far so I think I'm sure they know what they're doing it's a huge deal and it's the first acquisition so for them clearly it's going to lead to a huge amount of original content which is what they really want because they spend a lot on licensing content such as Disney's and other people's I, mean, I think finding character IP at scale you know a decent amount of it is is, is difficult you know by, by picking up them you know they do pick up some good threads that can go into a variety of different things you know sort of Marvel Cinematic Universe is has delivered huge amounts of properties broadcast telly VOD telly movies it's powering those services so it's probably not a huge surprise that they've gone oh let's find something that can help us do a bit more of that oh if they really copy Disney completely then we might end up with the Netflix land somewhere (laughs) with an orange is the new black ride (laughs) it's interesting Uh, yeah i think that is probably what you would predict and okay so the end game for disney that's that makes sense because they are the big name in family entertainment you know if you've got kids chances are you might well spend 10 pounds a month to access all of that content 80 years worth of classic movies and everything else 
But if you're not Disney, if you're Warner Brothers or you're Fox or you're whatever, there comes a point where every studio would like their end game to be, we have our own streaming platform with all our content on it. But there must be a recognition that at some point, if you fragment it too much, people aren't prepared to pay £100 a month for 10 different streaming services and they'll just be pirating stuff again. Though I think in America the difference is they're already paying £100 a month for um, cable, uh, which is much more expensive than what we pay for multi-channel telly kind of in the UK. And so cord cutting in the States notionally frees up a number of £10 for you to put on Amazon Prime and Netflix and, and other things. So There's a limit though, isn't of it? Of course there is, and I think that, that's a, a content-driven limit. So in America, CBS has their own streaming service and uh, it's been kind of bumbling along as the sort of fourth, fifth most successful operator. But that's where the new Star Trek series is going to be. Uh, and that's going to have one viewing, one episode, the first episode, the pilot's going to be on CBS Broadcast Telly, and then the rest of it is going to be on um, CBS All Action, I think it might be called. Um, uh, on that system so they're going we want more content more original content we've got all of our back catalogue um, and we think we can make more money on it than licensing it to Netflix Sticking with online content and it's been a tumultuous week for The Guardian who saw their most popular podcast Football Weekly undergo a change of presenter and producer just as the new football season is about to begin uh, Matt what's happened here? Uh, this is a good old fashioned radio talent steal but they're probably the first in the podcast world. The, think, the guys think you'll find you're sitting on the, the former Guardian <laughs> Media Talk podcast. I thought we didn't mention that. <laughs> um, a land grab if ever there was one. Uh, but, but Football Weekly, sort of the, the leading football podcast, has lost its uh, top two people to a startup. So uh, this is presenter James Richardson and producer Ben Green. Yes. Who really are the show, basically, yes. aren't it? That and Football News. And you can't really copyright that format, right? And they've buggered off to set up their own indie. Yeah, so... What's interesting is they're part of the new indie that's been set up, so I don't know the exact detail, but if you're going to set up a new podcast startup, stealing one of the, the big shows or most of the big show would, would, would be a sensible thing. I think it's one of those amusing things where the talent can move much quicker than production because the production has the notice period to run. Uh, I don't imagine The Guardian would have expected that to happen, but the big test will be you know, brands versus presenters, you know, the Football Weekly is still going to continue. We'll see in the charts how well it does. Yes, and Louise, just in the last few days, The Telegraph has launched its own football podcast, which has gone straight towards the top of the iTunes charts. So, I mean, there are opportunities here, aren't there, to say to people who really only listen to Football Weekly, not because they like James Richardson, but because they just trusted The Guardian, to say, oh, it's fine. There are other newspapers out there that can make podcasts as well. Mm. And there's an audience there that will churn to anything. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think people are less loyal to to brands and things like that, and they may go where the people are, but also we know podcasting is still expanding, which is good news for us <laughs> here around the table. And I think, yeah, launching new stuff is, is quite an exciting thing, for even for big legacy things like newspapers. I mean, not to say that James Richardson is the Jeremy Clarkson of the uh, online world, uh, but there's maybe an analogy there, isn't there? The Grand Tour started, the hardcore Clarkson fans watched it. There's still an audience for Top Gear. It's not as big as it was. I mean, maybe both can continue and this isn't actually as big a deal as, as it seems to be at Guardian Towers where it's really ruffled some feathers. Yeah, I mean, I, I think people listen to multiple football podcasts now and, and they will continue to do so. I think the, the probably the slight difference is about your presenter passion for podcast is probably stronger than uh, broadcast radio and I think even for telly to a certain degree uh, yeah, there is something about having a thing you've chosen to listen to you know, in your ears you subscribe to every week that, that, that you consume I think the other bit is 
that they have a relationship with that audience through social media as well. So you know, communicating the fact of where they've gone to with a link that gets you back into it is, is much easier than it would have used, used to have been. And in the radio world, sometimes people disappear and then offer three months and they reappear somewhere else. Mm. And it's quite hard to communicate, oh, where have they gone? And the old show has been replaced and uh, got a, a, a bit of a running start. Uh, so, no, I think... Uh, I think podcasting allows this flipping around much easier. Again, we'll see channel brand versus presenter brand. Uh, I think the, the Telegraph one's interesting because I think the name of the new Telegraph one is quite close to what the name of the new James Richardson one's going to be. So they announced it before there was a feed and then people, I think, have perhaps followed the Telegraph one thinking that's where they go. Oh, really? So it's okay. all, a bit of a, all a bit of a mess. And the idea behind the new indie is that if the audience does come to the new show that they'll basically form a kind of football podcast network so and they haven't sort of talked about exactly what those shows will be but they've hinted at kind of some of the minor football leagues and things like that international football there's an audience for all sorts of niches in football that's a no-brainer isn't it now why hasn't that happened before there are football podcasts for every single club in the uk and yet apart from a few informal arrangements there's no big network selling well, advertising on it. You could say there is. So, so Acast, uh, big podcast network, have very much concentrated on signing up football podcasts. Mm. And so they collectively sell those. And I think, I think I was talking but they have no creative control. They are selling no. adverts. Yeah, but then... And I should declare we're on Acast as well. You're listening to an <laughs> Acast podcast right now. That's why occasionally you hear an inserted ad on this show. But they're not telling us what to say. There's no content curation there. But if they wanted to say... Um, if they wanted to run some S&P, you know, some presenter talk-ups on a product across all of those podcasts, they could do that pretty instantly. Seemingly, the relationship at the moment is such that most podcasts are happy to run the ads that are provided because they're still even on the, the bigger podcast. isn't a huge volume of material um, to, to talk up. So there is notionally a, a football network. I've always expected there to be more niche networks around certain topics uh, that can deliver great audiences to, to advertisers. And Louise, when it comes to The Guardian as an online brand, they were pioneering in the space of podcasting when it began 12 years ago. They're part of the reason that people like me and producer Matt are involved in podcasting. That first generation of UK podcasters came on board partly thanks to The Guardian. But it seems to me the problem is they do have these legacy brands. You know, they, they started making shows based around their newspaper content, football, media, uh, <laughs> politics, tech, etc., and because of the success of some of those shows, they have essentially been forced to continue making those shows, which means they can't innovate. And the problem is in the online space, you need to keep innovating. You need to keep having completely new shows and new talent. This could be an opportunity. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I think if you've got a legacy brand like The Guardian, you've got a huge amount that people know about and to build on. You've got this double-edged sword where, yeah, you know, they, they completely, in some ways, started what has become a great podcast world. But... Yeah, you end up slightly trapped by what people know you for. And I think it is harder to innovate. Um, I don't know about football podcasts so much, but more generally, I think it can become restrictive. And I think that is slightly what we're starting to see, especially with this move of, of the football guys off to a, an indie. Yeah. That said, we, I think we can all agree that Chips With Everything was better when it was still called Tech Weekly and presented by me. Uh, now, before we head into part two and some news in brief, uh, after a year of rather complex news stories, many of you are just about to take your first holiday in two years. Uh, but if it's been tough for the nationals, spare a thought for those writing the news 
for children. The Week Junior launched just under two years ago and now claims to be the fastest growing children's magazine with over 40,000 8 to 14 year olds reading it every week. Earlier I spoke to Felicity Capon, deputy editor of The Week Junior, about why Dennis Publishing decided to launch a print product for a generation addicted to screens. I think the conventional wisdom when people wanted to put the Week Junior together was this isn't going to work because kids don't want to read prints, they go online for everything and also kids don't care about the world around them and actually I think what's so interesting about the phenomenal growth of the Week Junior is that that's absolutely not the case. They do really like having a hard copy that comes in through the post box with mum and dad's copy every Friday and they are so engaged on issues that I never thought they would be, as particularly uh, Brexit. Our social media lit up with Brexit, with kids wanting to know all about it, how it was going to affect them. So it's been really fascinating in that respect. Kids really, really do care about the world around them. Do you think it is a certain kind of kid, though? Because it does seem to me to be a certain kind of parent who would think, oh, yes, well, our little darling should be reading The Week Junior so that they can learn all about the world, just like I used to read Encyclopedia Britannica in the library at school. I think there is... Certainly some truth in that, but I think we are very conscious of that and we are trying to expand ever more into schools. And we had at one point a great partnership with prisons where we were trying to get magazines to juvenile detention centres and to more disadvantaged kids from different socioeconomic backgrounds because I think they if, if they had anything they probably need it more than the kids we're reaching currently but we are we're very aware of that yeah so how did you end up in children's journalism well I actually come from a more um, newsy writing for adults background so before this I was working for Newsweek magazine as a reporter and a columnist and before that I, I wrote for the Telegraph for a year and various other newspapers. So this was totally different for me coming into the Week Junior and coming into children's publishing. And I think my role was, I think they wanted me originally because I did have that newsy background and we were trying to work out, we're trying to have a mixture on the team of experts in children's publishing and then people who also knew a little bit about what's going on in the world. Um, so I think that's where I came in. Um, but I think it's so different from anything I've ever written before because everything is been turned on its head everything's topsy-turvy so at one of the big newspapers or at Newsweek for example if it's terrible to say but if something awful had happened in the world like a terrorist attack that's when everyone's at their most busy you know you get maximum coverage at the week junior we all sort of sit with our head in our hands thinking oh my god another terrorist attack how on earth are we gonna explain this to the kids or mm. and so it's really interesting in in that sense so uh, what else is different about the way editorially the magazine is put together? I mean, would you recognise coming from Newsweek the, the processes that are in place to, to decide what's in an issue? I think one of the most interesting things is that every time there is some good news, we all sort of do a collective victory dance. If we have a Monday morning <laughs> meeting where elephants are no longer endangered or we found some new scientific cure, we all sort of weep with happiness. Whereas, uh, you know, there was no no end of bad news and... Uh, at Newsweek or at the Telegraph or something and, and if anything that was you know you can never have too much of Bad it whereas, cells, yeah. exactly whereas the week junior we are always very conscious of trying to get a good balance on the pages so if we do have to lead with you know the attacks in Manchester or Grenfell we're very conscious to make sure that the rest of the magazine has enough uplifting and inspiring and sometimes downright silly stories that aren't going to put kids completely off mm. current affairs and politics. Understood, but is there any debate about whether or not Grenfell should be the lead, or is it always? You know, if there's a big story like that, there's no questions, or do you sometimes think this is just too bleak? Um, we never want to patronise our readers by just taking something out. So there was no question that Manchester would be our cover story. 
Um, it the was, terror attack. The, the terror attack. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it was kids. Firstly, so they were all talking about yeah. it, um, and also it was Ariana Grande. Um, Grenfell was, you know, such a huge story. There's no way we would just sort of sense the news and say this didn't happen. The world's a lovely place. Um, so f- there was no question about that. Really, I think sometimes it's more about how we write about it and what we want to include or what we want to focus on. You know, the response to the secu- emergency services. We might go more for that than a man wielding a knife has attacked all these people and there's blood everywhere. I think obviously things like sex, sex abuse, or sex abuse, we wouldn't go anywhere near it actually because so many of our readers won't even know what sex is. And I think if the first thing they read is it's this terrible, scary thing, Mm. that's not what we want to do. How do you explain Donald Trump? Donald Trump's a really interesting one. I think that's a good example actually of when all the issues about his treatment towards women and the whole pussy grabbing thing came about that was a really interesting one because we had to address that in some way there were so many things that we couldn't actually say but I think for that we use something like you know he's been disrespectful to women or he said disrespectful comments to women without going into all the but the problem is you know from that point of view there's not a happy ending is there you know he said disrespectful things to women and he's the most powerful man in the world and America voted for him how do you sell that well, you know, they this is need democracy. to know that. They need to know that. I think I, we're not trying to sort of whitewash the world and make it this wonderful My Little Pony place. You know, it, it, there is this man who said these terrible things and is, is now one of the most powerful people in the world. Um, and that is an uncomfortable reality of our time. But actually, the point is that we are bringing up the next generation of statesmen and politicians and scientists. And they need to, I think it's actually important that they see all the the unfair things and the injustices because hopefully it sounds very idealistic but they're the ones who are going to do something about it and make a better stab of it than we are so you know as long as we keep a balance of uplifting and inspiring stuff yeah they do need to know the not so great things about the world as well I think also we have to be careful with Trump that we are as and everything we cover we're as balanced as we possibly are we don't have an agenda and we try very much to say the facts here's what's going on but we're actually going to you know, let you make up your mind about what you think about Donald Trump. And as a journalist, just give us some insight into how to write for children. So what what is the thing, you know, can you share any tips about writing an article that will make it work? Um, headlines, I mean, again, like I was saying earlier, it's sort of topsy-turvy. You're avoiding sensationalism. You don't want some flashy headline. You want just the summing up of the story in, in the title. So you're going for far more sort of, I mean, they're still exciting, but nothing that's too sensationist and then it's just about very being very calm and neutral and sort of explaining the facts everything has to be explained you wouldn't believe the amount of terms that you you write a sentence and you think oh, I've got to explain that word and then you write another one you I've got to explain that word if I might just interject as well a personal speculation as to your success I think it might be that there's no uh, specific gender that the weak junior appears to be aimed at and that's the thing when you're buying you know, print media for children, isn't it? It's it's pretty clear, like, this is the boys' mag because it's got space on the front, and this is the girls' mag because it's got my little pony on the front. And, you know, current generation of parents are fed up with that. They don't necessarily want gendered media. I think also current generation of kids have cottoned onto that, and I think... Um... I think that's just sort of been and gone now. I don't I don't think you can just say space and dinosaurs is for boys and pretty dolls are for girls. I think that's just so old hat that it just won't wash. And I think But what's great about your magazine is you get both. Yeah. The story about space and ponies. Exactly. <laughs> and I don't think there's anything to suggest that boys are turning science and tech and girls are turning to anything else. I think it is a magazine that speaks to boys and girls and, and we've certainly from our subscription and our feedback we know that we're reaching both genders equally. 
Felicity Capon. Uh, Louise, does this surprise you, the success of the week junior? It doesn't, and I think several things that Felicity said there really struck a chord with me. The first was that when they set up the week junior, uh, they had people telling them, kind of sceptics telling them, that children aren't interested in news, they're not interested in the world around them. And that really echoes something I get at BuzzFeed a lot if I do sort of panel talks or whatever. It's, oh, young people aren't interested in news. And this is a really common and often repeated mistake that people assume that perhaps perhaps because young people aren't interested in the old news brands or they don't want to receive news in the same way that they're not interested at all and it's evidently completely untrue. I mean it shows doesn't it that the formula Matt when you're trying to sell current affairs to children is not to make them think take your medicine but but to make them actually genuinely curious about what they're reading and they naturally will want to educate themselves. Absolutely I mean for fun kids we do quite a lot of in-school work and you know, if you think of a, an eight-year-old or a nine-year-old, what they're exposed to every day across media and at school, it's a huge amount of information on topics and what they get from watching EastEnders or Doctor Who or Hacker on CBBC. You know, it's a huge amount of huge amount of different things. And of course, they're interested in it if, if you find great ways to talk about it. Uh, and I think what The Week Genius done, but also what kind of First News has done, is if you package it correctly uh, and you understand your audience, then then you'll do well. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Time for some news in brief now. Louise Ridley and Matt Deacon are still with me. Let's start with the latest listening figures, the Rajars for the radio industry. Matt, Mr. Rajar Deegan. I know how much half your audience enjoy this. <laughs> <laughs> as much as that. I'm not sure we've got our own survey. Uh, take us through your key findings in a way that will excite and entertain those who aren't interested in the radio uh, industry but need the key findings <laughs> for their media work. A dumpster has just driven past. I don't know if that's a metaphor. (laughs) (laughs) So good news uh, for lots of people. So best news, uh, more people are listening to the radio. 
Uh, that's partly because there are more people in the country. Hooray for population growth. And that includes digital radio, right? More digital radio listening than ever before. Yeah, so the big number we look at for digital radio listening is shares. So this is volume consumed because at the point in which we hit, we hit 50% is when the government will start to look at whether they will uh, implement some changes to perhaps turn off uh, some analog radio services. Never gonna um, happen, and what it? we've seen We're for all going to be dead. Uh, <laughs> and what we've seen for digital is that's reached an all-time high of 48.7%. Mm. So it is very close to that magic 50% number. Um, the other thing for DAB, which is the vast majority of digital listening still, uh, over half the country listen to some form of dig- DAB digital radio each week. Um, internet growth's good, uh, but only still is only 8.8% of all radio listening. So I think people always assume that everyone listens to radio on the internet, but it's still relatively low. Looking at stations, uh, Radio 1, which had a horrific book last quarter, um, is back up, which is good. They had good reach, good hours. Still 15 to 24 is a little bit wobbly for them. They always say, don't worry, people watch our YouTube videos, so it's okay, honest. That's true. Um, however, Capital, when I looked at the Capital Network, it is closing in on the amount of 1524s that Radio 1 have. So, you know, people, you know, kids and young people are listening to the radio. They're just happening to some other radio stations. Which is good news for them, considering the balls up they had around their breakfast show, right? I mean, that's been pretty uh, yeah, confusing. Yeah. Who's hosting the Capital Breakfast Show? Uh, it used yeah. to be quite a big deal. Yeah, absolutely. And I think if you talk, if you again talk to younger audiences, and Roman, who's now the the, the new presenter, has, sorry, has, sorry, Roman, and seemingly big fan, big fan here, has seemingly settled in really well. And that's still the biggest London breakfast show, biggest commercial radio London breakfast show. So they're doing they're doing something right. I mean, Capital generally good book um, network is networks doing well kiss also doing well uh, but sadly still kind of trails trails capital the other station doing well in london uh, lbc had a, a great book and there is a question you know there's been a lot of politics news i think lbc has really uh, uh, been a, a big part of that story over the last couple of years and i think it's perhaps consolidated that audience you know they're the biggest commercial radio uh, station in London by share. Um, the the true biggest radio station in London is Radio 4, uh, So, which you know, a lot of people in London regard as a local radio station anyway. Uh, so I think there is something interesting. Perhaps LBC and Radio 4 uh, are doing well uh, off, off the back of what people in the capital are interested in. Well, and also the, the tumultuous news we've had over the last two years. I mean, you know, LBC are doing well, but, you know, the news has been compelling, hasn't it? And LBC is essentially 24 hours Brexit and Trump. It has, but I think they've positioned themselves to do well out of uh, yeah. Brexit and Trump and delivering a rolling version of that. So how uh, does it compare against Five Live, Talk well, Radio? So Five Live and Talk Sport have had pretty bad books if you look year on year. Now, they haven't had... Uh, a big football event which we had last year um, and also I think what, what they're finding kind of as legacy legacy broadcasters I think for Five Live which is predominantly news you know, people think of it as a sports channel but it's predominantly news um, have had uh, some of their special source taken away by uh, LBC's growth of being a, a more, an accessible news outfit which is what they, they their thing used to be and also probably Radio 4 being a little bit more accessible than it has been in the past so they're difficult for them to, to find a way Excellent. Thank you for your analysis, as ever. Louise, the big story here as well is that commercial radio really is competing with the BBC now. And that has come about thanks to these consolidated brands, many of which Matt just checked off there. Do you miss radio stations being local, being part of the community, having their own identity? Or do you think it's, it's a good thing for listeners that you can listen to Capital in Wales and Heart in Cambridge? I think there's such a strong argument on both sides of that. I used to work for a great local radio station called Radio Jackie in South West oh, London, yeah, yeah, which yeah. I loved. Um, so working there was great. Um, 
Do they not exist anymore? No, they do. They, they do. do. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, I think going strong. Um, I think it's a tough shout. I'm, I am kind of a believer in if people are being provided with good entertaining radio, then wherever it comes from, that is how the market moves, which is probably a bit of a harsh harsh reality but I know um, Matt in some of your writing you, you talked about um, the Heart 80s mm. is that right which is doing really well which is a sort of really simple format giving people this underserved 80s music that everyone loves and it's Heart using its brand and that's the kind of success that people might not get that excited about but it is a success and it's great you know it's, it's great to give people something they want and I think there's a danger of over analysing these things and, and I find radio such an enjoyable medium that it's important to, to celebrate everyone getting something they want and getting it easily really I, mean, I think one of the big shifts uh, for older uh, format radio or, or, or local radio that was at a time think of the, even in the, up to the 90s where no digital radio no internet no broadband uh, and local radio stations on those FM frequencies did very well because there wasn't anything else to listen to. Mm. And it's easy to jump to the assumption that that's because they did a really great job. And I think they did do good jobs, but maybe it was also because they were a monopoly provider of, 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 that, of that platform. And, and suddenly when you open it up and you provide more choice to people, you see that it's like Heart 80s, 840,000 reach on its first book. You know, it's, and that's a that's a phenomenal market that's just appeared overnight. The, the consuming that radio station, and that doesn't mean other stations are rubbish, but it does say that there was an underserved market that that, that now fits. And a success of branding because Absolutely. Heart 80s, you know what that means. Jack FM have been doing that for what five years anyway. Yes, but harder to understand what it means. Absolutely, and that's uh, that's his history, and that's having. You've done the same thing for a long time. I think what, Heart's probably like 95, I think it's its first appearance on, on the radio dial. Um, but also, it's a really good product. I mean, it's a really slick, well-made, well-programmed product. The main service, as well as what what they've done with, with 80s. Okay, uh, let's talk about the Sunday Times. Uh, last week, they fired Kevin Myers, the columnist whose anti-Semitic comments <laughs> found their way into the Irish edition of the paper. Louise, recap what happened here for those who missed it. So this was a column uh, recently from Kevin Myers, who's a journalist I hadn't heard of, and I think a lot of other journalists hadn't heard of, though he obviously writes for the Sunday Times Irish be, version. So. He appears to be the sort of Jan Moyer of Ireland. Yes, he, I think so. So clearly a controversial columnist, and his history is of writing many, many deliberately, I would say, provocative columns, or they've been published because the publisher clearly knows they're deliberately um, provocative. He published a piece about the BBC gender salary gap, which has been much discussed, and um, essentially said several what I would say are definitely sexist thing about women and said what were accused to be anti-Semitic things about two uh, female presenters who also happen to be Jewish and kind of linked that to why they might be earning a lot uh, more Yeah, so what he did is he women. said, if you look at the highest earning women, having slagged off women for 500 mm. words, he said, <laughs> then said, <laughs> if you look at the highest earning women, Claudia Winkleman and Vanessa Feltz, and the comment was something like, you'll note that they're both Jews, a population not unknown for haggling for a better yeah, salary or something. Yeah, it led on lots of was it Proper Victorian anti-Semitism, yeah. yeah so... so how did that get into the paper? Well, this is the question that, that you know some people have touched on, but isn't quite looked at enough. So what happened to him is he did get fired. Everyone did get outraged about this. Um, but he said himself that it, this column he wrote would have gone through five or six people who would have approved it going in the paper. And the sort of my reaction and a lot of my fellow colleagues' reaction to see this sort of outrage going on on Twitter was just this slight eye roll, like another incidence where someone's written an outrageous column clearly their whole job they've been hired to be provocative and the paper has gone too far in deciding that was okay and perhaps slightly lost perspective because they constantly publish these controversial columns by him so that it's not a case of 
is this column okay? It's, he's always controversial, how far within the bracket of controversial. You already put yourself in a very controversial uh, space, so they've clearly made an error of judgment there. It's just a shame that that could happen, and I think it's just a bit of a, a bind that we find ourselves in, because I, I believe in free speech and people can express opinions, but when you get columnists like him and like Katie Hopkins who are hired to upset people, mm. to some extent I would judge, it just puts you in a really problematic space where you push further and further and further. And it's, I've got to say, it's always or often old white men who are being paid to do this. And you think, where are the young non-white women getting to voice their really outrageous opinions? It's a particular kind of journalist who often gets paid to have that platform. And it's, it's a bit of a shame, really. And Matt, what does this say about the way that the regional versions of the Sunday Times in this instance, but actually any kind of national brand operates. Because actually, in internet terms, they all appear at thetimes.co.uk. So you could say they are the same publication, even though they were strange to point out they're not. Well, as the mail did, how can you possibly think we're mail online? Uh, Because that's your (laughs) website, I think. Uh, But also, similar issue with Kelvin uh, and, and, and his unacceptable comments. I mean, I imagine from a production point of view, whoever is there to review the material as you were saying, goes, this is the person we have to say the crazy things. Yep, they said some more crazy things, right, copy and paste, right, next thing I've got to do before the, the paper goes to bed. It's that, isn't it? So they get does it, does it more, basically, from being in that position. Mm. And may I just say, for the record, when it comes to my salary for the media podcast, my Judaism has failed me. Uh, here's a story that you may have missed. Discovery, fronted by Murdoch nemesis John Malone, has just picked up 50% of scripts the company that runs Dave and Watch and the other UK TV channels. So, Matt, that now puts Discovery in bed with BBC Worldwide. Yes. So who sold off their shares? What does all this mean? So so Scripps uh, had 50% of UK TV, with the BBC having 50%. And that's BBC Worldwide. BBC Worldwide. Yeah. So uh, all of Scripps has been acquired, or was about to be acquired by Discovery, therefore they pick up their UK holdings, which includes UK TV. I mean, UK TV, very, very successful operation, um, makes a lot of money for everybody. Uh, I don't think scripts particularly are a, a noisy media operator, particularly. You know, they don't see them, the head of scripts be doing the McTaggart lecture or anything like that, do you? Uh, Discovery are doing more in Europe. You know, they acquired Eurosport uh, last year, I think. They've got the European Olympic rights in most of the, the, the territory. Uh, they've even subbed some of that back from the BBC because the BBC have a bit more Olympics to come. So they are a big and growing European player. Um, they're always potentially in the frame for an ITV acquisition. Mm. I think they're in the frame for the Channel 5 acquisition for Viacom got it. So they're definitely a, a, a bigger player in the market. I think there was some talk that when Scripps took 50% or bought out the last shareholders of UK TV, they asked the BBC, BBC Worldwide whether they could take the lot and BBC Worldwide were keen to keep hold of their half. I'm sure Discovery would like it all because I think, in effect, it's the biggest advertiser after ITV or it's up there kind of with, with Sky and Channel 4. So it's one of the big, the big players now. Is there still heritage and credibility for a brand like Discovery basically being able to say, look, we broadcast I don't know, 40 Towers and Only Fools and Horses and these classic BBC comedies does that matter anymore? Because Discovery are a huge company. They see themselves as one of the great programme makers of the world. So is there still something special in being able to broadcast BBC content? I think broadcasting popular shows that have strong awareness uh, is a good thing if you're trying to be a multi-channel network. Um, and you know, these, well, you know, these well-funded BBC programmes are a, 
a quick shortcut to doing that. Saying that though, UKTV have had a lot of success with Dave with its um, its new its new programming. Yeah, uh, or as I call it, the Dara O'Brien slate. Yes, <laughs> uh, and I think they've managed to build some of that success off the back of obviously the audiences that uh, reruns of Top Gear um, have given them. Uh, and the personality that, that curating those shows have given them to, to launch this new original content. I think what you also find, and I think they found it with Channel 5 and Viacom, is the Channel 5 output can be expanded because of links with other properties within that company. And I think you know, Discovery Communications is an evil corporate entity, one thing, versus the Discovery Channel Shark Week, etc., um, are probably kind of two separate things to think about. But they, they, Discovery and now Scripps have a large number of different channel brands uh, with a large bits of programming that they can put on different channels too. Okay, and sticking with uh, relatively undercovered outposts of the BBC, uh, let's talk about the World Service because the fallout from the BBC salary revelations last month continue unabated, and now Louise, the World Service are up in arms. Why? Uh, They are indeed. There was meant to be a report into the salary gap, which many people speculate or or know perhaps inside is is very large between the World Service and the BBC and then Network News. Um, This report was meant to be out in the spring and it's been delayed for whatever reason, which is causing a lot of angst. It's been promised that it will be out soon. From a Guardian report that I read, uh, there was sort of sources saying that they don't know of any BBC World Service presenters who earn more than £50,000 a year, yet we know from recent revelations that people like Hugh Edwards are earning about 600,000 at the news section of the programme which is obviously a pretty insane gap Uh, the World Service is meant to be a real jewel in the crown, it reaches millions of people and I think there was a Freedom of Information request earlier this year which showed that the average senior broadcast journalist gets 10% less than the average news network journalist, so this is a pretty significant gap and and I think there's all reason to be slightly up in arms, so hopefully that report will come out and and changes may be made But those changes I guess could end up with us all paying more from the licence fee and of course most people in Britain aren't watching the World Service, so I mean there is an argument that you know things are right as they are Sure. I mean, the, the reason that I, I would imagine this has happened was historically World Service was run very separately from the BBC, you know, in a, in a different building by, by a different team. And, and there wasn't so much crossover with uh, network news and, and World Service operations. So I think they have travelled their own route. I think the other thing is some of these some of these presenters are on shows that you know, tens of millions of people listen to and are, are huge deals in different different parts of the world. But, you know, it's not front of mind, is it? And we don't, the people who actually hold the big purse strings don't consume it, don't really think about that and, and understand how that works. So, again, follows its own, follows its own trail. OK, we're nearly done, but there is just time for our media quiz. This week, it is entitled Regeneration. As the dust settles on the revelation that the new Doctor Who has no male genitalia, your task this week is to guess what these popular media properties have regenerated into. It's the best of three. Buzz in with your name. So, Louise, you will say... Louise. And Matt, you will say... (laughs) Matt. The winner is Mel and Sue, the loser, Noel Fielding. (laughs) Bit harsh. Here we go with regeneration number one. BBC Radio 4's Front Row. Louise. Louise. Uh, I believe this is the fact that Giles Corrin will be fronting a TV version of yes. Front Row on BBC Two. Yes, which sounds a bit like the culture show that they axed five years ago. Yeah, interestingly. So so I think um, 
you know, it's a pretty, I guess, I suppose it's a, a comfortable and safe kind of idea, but it's interesting that they, they scrapped a similar sort of idea. <laughs> kind of annoying, though, isn't it, Matt, that when they take a radio title and move it to telly, a radio title with really good presenters, many of whom have TV experience, mm. they're replacing the presenters with Giles Corrin, Amal Rajan, Nikki Bedi, all good presenters, but, I mean, what was wrong with the Radio 4 presenters? Also, I read they're going to work incredibly closely with the front row team, but I think the programme's being made by BBC Scotland. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> uh, to be fair, the culture show at which I used to work was also made by BBC Scotland as a co-production with the team at TV Centre, and uh, we had a weekly conference call, so I think you'll find that is working very closely. Uh, right, who am I regenerating as now? I am former Downing Street Chief of Staff, Nick Timothy. Louise. Louise, for the win. <laughs> um, so Nick Timothy, who left uh, as one of the two main advisors to Theresa May in June after yeah. the Shambolic snap election. Has, left is a useful word in that sense. <laughs> left, yes, yeah. left. Very correct <laughs> here. Um, has been or is being regenerated into a columnist yes. uh, for The Sun and also The Telegraph, which was quite a surprise move because it came very soon and seems that those Tory supporting papers have forgotten that he was responsible <laughs> for the policy of the Shambolic general election and apparently wrote the manifesto and came up with the dementia tax. So he is not a friend to the people who wanted uh, Theresa May to get a bigger majority. So it's, it's very interesting to see. I th- I'm sure he'll be, he's, I think he's already written a piece kind of towing a why we got it wrong, very open kind of line about that. But it it's pretty interesting recruitment, I'd say. Okay. Uh, well, Louise has already won, but we're all, all on the edge of our seats to see whether Matt can come in with a point here. Uh, Radio One's Big Weekend. Who am I regenerating Matt. as? Matt. I think this is going to be the biggest, BBC's biggest weekend. Correct. Which I hope they don't keep as a name because it's dreadful. Working time. Um, so, because there's no Glastonbury... Well, that's the hook anyway, because there's no Glastonbury. Uh, Radio One, uh, Radio Two... Uh, the other music networks are going to have a weekend of activity across uh, Scotland, Wales, uh, Northern Ireland and England uh, to reflect the networks and to fill that Glastonbury-sized gap. Good idea. I'm torn. The BBC do do things very well. This is a nice It'll focus. It'll rate, won't it? It will rate and it will be a good way to tell people about what's on these radio stations and I like that as from a radio programmer. From the commercial side of me, I feel... Uh, we're not underserved by music events, uh, commercial music events. Mm. and Yeah, why not just Green Latitude instead? Yeah, I imagine if I was uh, the producer of a, an event at a similar time in a similar place, the BBC popping up and doing a very good job might annoy me slightly. Yeah, uh, That is it for our show for today. My thanks to Louise Ridley, Matt Deegan and Felicity Capon. Catch up with our previous episodes and get the latest episodes as soon as they're released by subscribing for free at our website, themediapodcast.com. Today's show is dedicated, once again, to Simon Collum, a musician and accompanist for The X Factor. Thank you for your continuing support, Simon. Uh, If you would like to keep us on the air, like Simon, you can get a dedication twice. Go to themediapodcast.com slash donate give generously as you can see we will not turn away your money i've been ollie mann the producer matt hill the media podcast is a ppm production and until next time in edinburgh bye-bye hey folks i'm mark Marin from the wtf podcast and this episode is brought to you by kleenex ultra soft tissues 
your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 